John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome to a special live preview of our 300th episode. I'm Steve Morris here with my partner, John Roca. Hello and happy 300th, everybody. 300 episodes. It seems Ooh. like only yesterday I was crazily editing our 200th episode. <laughs> and now we're at 300, John. What is time? I don't understand what time is anymore in our yeah. world. So it's no surprise that 300 has crept up on us so quickly. Yeah. But uh, it's so crazy to think about. And you think about, look, well, there's, what, 52 weeks in a year. Yes. 300 means we're close. We're, we're past our six-year anniversary because we've done multiple parts. Yep. So it's kind of crazy to think about the fact that we've gotten to 300. And it's been a heck of a ride. And we've really enjoyed how the show has come, kind of metamorphosized into what it has and evolved into what it has and how much people are really enjoying it. And we love your wonderful compliments that you send us so i'm very much and i've enjoyed our fans so i'm and our listeners so i'm very much looking forward to answering their questions and us being put on the spot to answer their questions for this 300th episode for sure well and we've already gotten a bunch of exciting questions that were sent to the cinephiles 1941 at gmail.com that's the year of citizen kane at cinephiles 1941 at gmail.com that's where we'll we want to get your questions and what we're doing is we're doing first a Q&A with all of these questions. And then after that, we've already announced that we will be moving to Patreon for an hour with our $10 and above patrons, and then another hour with our $25 above patrons. And theoretically, we're going to do that live. We haven't announced the time yet, but it's coming up real soon. Uh, And so we definitely want you to tune in for that. And on Patreon, it's like the week of Patreon, because we're also just about to record a short. One of our patrons asked John and I, what terrifies you <laughs> it's it's coming up on halloween it's a good question to answer and guess what cinephiles that's not all because this week we also we lost the great angela lansbury and we're going to release re-release our episode on beauty and the beast with a special new tribute to her absolutely yeah so and you know the 300th episode in three parts that makes all the sense it's 300th episode why not do it in three parts so that's the way it's going to be and for those of you who are at our highest tier you're going to get to listen to all three parts 
uh, or in our highest tiers, plural, you will get to listen to all three parts. So that's one of the perks of moving up the chain there as a patron or becoming a patron is getting the chance to uh, get these benefits for you. And also, you know, we're back with our, uh, or we're starting with our watch along, Steve. So those are going to be available. That's That's going to be available this month as well for Air Force One. Steve and I, we just finished recording uh, the whole uh, movie and had a lot of fun talking about that film. Both, not both of us on the same page about the movie. So it made it even more fun to have a discussion as we went along. Well, and that's another thing you can do on Patreon, which is help us figure out what our next watch along is going to be. So that is, man, we announced a lot of stuff. That's our 300th episode Q&A coming up this Friday. That's our 300th episode live conversations on Patreon for the $10 and $25 above uh, level. Those That date hasn't been set. We've got a tribute to Angela Lansbury, a re-release of Beauty and the Beast, and on Patreon, a new short on what terrifies us that's a lot of stuff going on on the cinephiles and we can't wait for all of you to check it out hello cinephiles and welcome to our 300th episode i'm steve morris i'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in los angeles california <laughs> hello, everyone. Uh, I feel like it should have had some kind of trumpets and everything leading us in. Um, hello, everyone. This is the outlaw John Roca, a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California. And Steve, we're this feels like a marathon almost, like a Boston marathon. Where, where are we at right now? Mile 12, mile 10. Where are we at at the 300th episode? I think it's an ultra marathon. Oh, I think ultra- we already completed the first. No, it's an Iron Man. Oh, we've already completed like one part, but now you and I are switching into like the bathing suit and stuff because we got to do the swimming. So, <laughs> and we still got the century bike ride to do. Like, it, it's we got a long way to go, man. We got a long way to go, but it's a good place to stop and take stock of the fact that we've made it to 300 episodes, which is very exciting and fun, Steve. And it's been a lot of uh, incredible episodes, incredible memories through the whole 300 episodes. But even over the last 100 episodes from 200 to 300, there's been a lot of fun episodes and fun guests and moments and really uh, just a just a grand old time talking movies and talking what we love and hearing from everybody who's listening to us now and and um, who has sent us messages to tell us how much they've enjoyed um, our show, which mean, always means so much. Trust me. Absolutely. You guys, Steve, I hope I can speak for Steve in saying this. You guys are never exhausting us when you send us messages. It means so much to us to occasionally read that message and hear how much we've influenced you or motivated you to get into movies or made you look at movies in a different way or even helped you through tough times. Those are very, um, those are things we can be very blessed and honored and humbled by for sure. The it's, it's we, every once in a while we get those, you know, you got me through a tough moment yeah. kind of message. And the honest truth is those messages have gotten me through some tough moments. Fair enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like, cause, you know, that you're frustrated and this is a lot of work and, you know, and then I get a message like that. I'm like, Oh, oh this yeah. is, I, it makes me feel good about what we're doing. And, it and, makes it feel like John Adams. Is anybody there? You know that kind of thing. John, I, we're going to do a Q&A, but John, I yeah. actually have a question for you. Okay. And, and this is one that literally just occurred to me as we were getting started. Mm-hmm. If you, on the day that we recorded our first episode ever Ooh. in June of 2016. Wow. If you were to give odds on us making it six years to our 300th episode, <laughs> what odds would you have given? <sighs> I'd have to say 50-50. Wow. You, you had a lot more faith than me, man. Well, no. It was, <laughs> well, dude, I don't make bad shows. I'm not trying to be Fair. cocky. I agree. I don't make bad shows. I, I This is something that has come to me naturally and instinctively. 
And I am very lucky and fortunate to have such incredibly talented and intelligent friends. And so when I pick the people to do shows with, I am purposely picking the people I want to do shows with because I know that we have good chemistry and I know we're going to find a way to make it work. I think if we had never met each other, if we had never had a conversation, I might have been much more skeptical, maybe at a 20, 15, 20%, because I feel like I can work with anybody, but certainly 15 to 20% that it would have survived, especially at the time. And I've said this before, and certainly people who've heard the show since the beginning have heard this before. I was doing like seven shows. Not that yep. that's changed, but like seven shows plus full-time at Collider. So it was a lot. Uh, oh, no, it wasn't full-time, I guess. At yeah, you weren't Collider was, yet. Yeah. yeah, but I was driving around the city all the time working on multiple shows, trying to get my name out there, trying to get myself established, plus the Schmodown, plus all these other things. So there was a lot going on in my life at the time. Um, and so uh, for me, it was um, a matter of like, can we figure this out? And I'm like, okay, an hour, because that's what it was originally, an hour sitting yeah. with my friend talking about a movie, we'll figure it out. And, St- and if Steve can't figure out the hosting thing, then I'll just take over and I'll host and we'll figure it out from there. So there were contingency plans in my mind to try to give it as much effort as possible. Um, but of course, as I've said before, what really kind of, allowed me to believe we had a better shot than other show than most shows or uh, sorry other shows um was that we already had a relationship and you were willing to take on a majority of the workload initially so that we could put this together right. you know and, and get it going and so that that helped me to relax and, and just kind of enjoy the show I, it's funny i realized buried in this there's really two questions yeah because sure. one question is how what what are the odds that I thought we could produce a good show, <laughs> and what are the odds that I thought we would still be going six years later? Mm. I think because I you know me I I have all sorts of insecurities, but mm. I also have a big set of arrogant things, and yeah. one of them is if you'd asked me, do I think we make good show? I would have said eighty percent sure. Yeah, I was really confident the show would be good. Yeah, in terms of my experience in Hollywood and whether or not things succeed or find an audience or can keep going, I have zero faith. So my my belief that if you had said, "What are the odds you're doing this six years from now?" I'd be like, I don't know, fifteen, twenty percent. Yeah, you know, okay. like uh, because things don't work. I mean, how many? I mean, you were doing those seven shows yes, back yes. then. How many of them are you doing today? Oh uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, top ten is still going. This is top ten, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, this in the top ten because the other stuff was connected to Collider and was all yeah. recap shows, and then I was guesting on other stuff as well. But yeah, not a lot of that stuff is is still around uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, six years is a long time. It is a lot of change. Yeah, I mean, it's funny listening to some of the podcasts I listen to, like mm. This American Life, one of the great shows. I mean, one of the most important radio shows of all time. Yeah, it's in the seven hundreds. So we're half, we have half of the episodes of This American Life. Right. You know, or not half, not quite half. Yeah. You know, Mark Marin just hit 1300, I think. Because he does two a week. But yeah, I, I, let me just say right now, I'm thrilled that it, it wasn't 15% that we're here, that we're still making it. And at this point, well, I'll ask, the, I'll ask a follow up question. Mm. What are the odds we're still doing this six years from now? Uh, I would say this. If we haven't, blown killed, up killed each other <laughs> no no because i think we're we've got a really good working relationship no, i think we're now. great i think yeah great. In, in the middle areas when things were really frustrating for me there was some tension for sure and it was all a matter of like i wasn't sure what was going on and i was frustrated and unhappy with the things that were happening in my life at the time and i think this just got sucked into the quagmire of all of that and i mean i had i've had tensions with matt since the beginning of top 10 
even though we're good friends and we work well together, there's always tension because he's an alpha and I'm an alpha. So that's part of it. Um, but no, I, I would say this. I think in the next six years, we have to go to a next level. Um, and, and I, th- and I mean that in the terms of attention, in terms of getting out there and, and in terms of luring more people to become patrons of the show to support us getting to the next level. Cause part of us getting to the next level is being able to rent a studio, being, you know, being able to uh, be supported financially from the patrons or from sponsors that say, Hey, let you guys can show up here and record twice a week. You like Marin and record your episodes. And because you're financially taken care of in that approach. So I think for me, that's the goal over the next six years is to get us to the next level where it becomes an actual show where we meet up somewhere and record it at a professional studio, maybe even have an engineer so we can take that off your hands and put that in, put that in motion. So there's a lot of um, possibilities that I hope happen over the next six years. And I know the people listening to us, I think, would be very in support of that and championing us going to the next level for sure. Uh, it, it's funny. I when you because I don't want to stop doing it. I'll say that right now. So no, I, no, no. Yes, I, we'll be I, doing I, it. I just want us to be in a separate place. No, we're, different we're, place. we're on the same page. And by the way, it is true. I think you and I are in the best rhythm we've ever been in in the last year totally. of of just getting what we need from each other. The I I I can't think of a single reason why we're not doing the show six years from now. And yeah, we were just talking off the mic about. Man, there are all these other projects where there's like a person who takes care of that thing. Yeah. You know, and it's like they have a social media person or an engineer or a Patreon person or a, and boy, that would make this show, A, it would make our lives easier. And B, I think the show could, could become better too. Yeah. You know, because there's only so much you, you and I can do. I'm, I'm very much in the place of looking of where I want to be in the next five to 10 years. And I love doing this show. So if this show starts to become something that's much more financially, um, uh, gives back more financially to where I'm at in my life than the other shows, I can start to kind of do less because this is the, because I love doing this show. It's a matter of like, okay, the timing of it all. And then of course the, uh, the, uh, where we're doing it, doing it virtually, all those things. If we can remove that where there's a studio, I can just drive up and, and just hang out with you for a couple hours recording and an engineer goes back and, you know, under probably under your supervision, because I know you'd like to be aware of the editing, uh, edits this thing so that we're happy about it, then we can relax and keep doing more shows, actually, sure. that because it takes less work uh, for you and for me. And so that would work so well for taking the show to the next level as well, you know? Uh, I, I've actually, it's funny, I've been thinking, and then we're going to get to your questions. I know, I promise we're going to get to all the yeah, questions. Yeah, we are, we are. We'll just but, have uh, fun, yeah. But uh, I've been thinking a lot lately of how I would teach someone how to edit this show <laughs> or the Star Trek show. Because at this point, I'm six years in. I've learned so, I have so many magic tricks mm. and so many things that I do to make things work right. that I'd have to go through and explain like, okay, this is the thought process and this is the technique and this is how, all right, this is how I deal with this problem. Like the music is wrong here and I need to bring it in or I need to cut out that, you know, there's all this stuff that only lives in my brain, you know? But if we have an engineer who's recording us on separate tracks, marking down notes, making yep. maybe that's an easier fix for us, but certainly something to aspire to as we go yeah. forward over the next six years. So uh, let's get to your questions. Our first question comes from Cameron Clark, and he says, hey, guys, I've been listening to some past episodes a lot, and my personal favorites are The Boogie Nights, Shawshank, and The Life and Films of Spike Lee, and Mm. congrats on making it to 300 episodes. Um, It's an interesting selection. 
And it's funny he mentions the life and films of Spike Lee because that's the one where we did interviews yeah. and intercut the interviews. Yeah. That's, I think, uh, pointing at a future direction. Of this. That's the evolution of the cinephiles. There might be a little bit in that episode. Yeah, I agree with that. He says, here are some of my questions. When are you guys going to do more animated films? Nearly all of Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks films are waiting to be reviewed. I'm surprised you haven't done The Lion King or Toy Story yet. Hmm. It's a fair point. I think because both of us default to needing Michael Vogel or somebody connected to animation to be a part of that with us, but maybe we just need to kind of do it ourselves and well, have a fun conversation. You know, And it's not like we don't know other people who work in animation. Right, exactly. I mean, we know very, a bunch of people true. that work in animation. And, you know, screw Michael Vogel anyway. I mean, well, who needs a guy? That, but... No, I love Michael Vogel. Um, I'm going to answer this question the way I'm going to answer any future versions of this kind of question. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yes. We want to do more of them. There's only, you know, our episodes keep getting longer and we will. We've talked, yeah. we've talked about them. That is our plan. And I know there are going to be other people asking, why haven't you done this or why haven't you done that? Same answer. Yeah. Uh, he has more questions. As a writer, is Paul Thomas Anderson underrated? He gets well-deserved credit as a director, but as far as writing, I think he doesn't get talked about as much like Tarantino or the Cone Brothers. John, what do you think of that? That's a fantastic question, I think, by Cameron. Thank you, Cameron. Here's what I would say. Um, You're right. I don't think many people think of Paul Thomas Anderson as this incredible writer. They think of him more as this fantastic director. But there is such great writing in his movies, certainly in There Will Be Blood. Even for as much as I do not like licorice pizza, you can't argue that there's some really great writing going on in the scenes that are there in the movie. Do I agree with the construction of the scenes and what's going on? No, but the writing fits what you're watching really well and uniquely. Um, and I do, I do find that fascinating as well. It's an excellent point. Maybe he's one of these guys where his directing so overshadows his writing that it kind of comes in second place. Whereas with Tarantino, it was a big deal when he was starting out because he came out of the indie scene that he was this video store clerk who wrote the script that Harvey Keitel loved. And it was his writing that got him through the door, not his directing. With Paul Thomas Anderson, it feels like they were both happening at the same time. And so the explosion was for both. And I think that might be the difference with Quentin. With the Coen brothers, I think, again, out of the 90s um, uh, independent film movement, once again, this idea of writing was a very big deal. Uh, but even with the Coen brothers, I don't think their writing gets talked about as much as their directing or their ability to f- make you feel the period piece of a movie. But you can't deny that the writing in like Miller's Crossing or Barton Fink um, or even Oh Brother Where Art Thou is very distinct to the setting of the movie and the time of the movie. So in that way, their writing probably deserves much co- more credit than it gets. So what I, what I would say is I think people sometimes confuse writing the art of screenwriting with writing dialogue writing dialogue is a subset of writing a screenplay like because that's still all of the structure the character development the backstory the all that stuff that's part of the writing and so do i think that uh paul thomas anderson writes sparkling dialogue the way that quentin tarantino does no way yeah he's not in the same league as in terms of just amazing musical dialogue like tarantino uh david mamet Aaron Sorkin and the Cone brothers, I would say are all better than Paul Thomas Anderson, mm. but writing is also coming up with the story and yeah. figuring out how it works. And I don't think 
I, I'd have to think this through before I really make this bold statement. But if you think about Magnolia and Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood and a bunch of the other Paul Thomas Anderson movies, yeah. they are more unique than a lot of the. And even though Coen Brothers and Tarantino, super unique writers. Yeah. But but like that, the ideas of what we're going to tell a story about and how the story is put together and the depth of those characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's writing, too. Uh, you know, it's obviously a collaboration with the actors. Yeah. But, but he wrote the character of Daniel Plainview. He wrote all those characters in Boogie yeah. Nights. I mean, so is the dialogue is good? No. Is the writer is good? He's a damn good writer. Yeah. True. You know, true. Um, uh, Cameron, you asked four questions. So I don't know if we're going to devote all of the all, as much time to all of them, but I'm going to read the next two. Okay. Speaking of Spike Lee, what's his his strongest skill, directing or writing? And then he writes, "P.S. Steve, I'm waiting for a full episode on Bamboozled at some point because I still remember how much you loved it. Yeah. Bamboozled is going to be a lot if we ever do it. I don't know if it's a full episode. Is his skill better at writing directing? It's really tough for me to say. I think he's a more interesting director. Maybe I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think that's my that's where I fall. I think it's the directing more than the writing that is his strongest skill. But it's not by much, to be honest with you. His writing is pretty fantastic. Yeah. But I also think one of the reasons his films sometimes don't work uh, is because of the writing, yes. not directing. And I think every film he's ever done, you can't argue that they're very well-directed films. It's the writing or the story construction that lets him down in those movies so i default to directing um his last question is do you think tom cruise should have won an oscar for magnolia and he puts in that he's noticed that after that film cruise didn't do as much dramatic work and do you think that's why Ooh, who so was i i looked up who the nominees okay. are okay and uh it is he lost to michael kane for cider house rules michael kane yeah and that is also the year of uh Michael Clark Duncan on Green Mile, Jude Law for Talented Mr. Ripley, and Haley Joel Osment for Sixth Sense. So what do you think? Should Tom Cruise have taken it that year? I actually think Michael Clark Duncan should have taken it that year. Hmm. I, I, I loved um, Tom and Magnolia, um, but I think Tom's performance in Top Gun Maverick is much more incredible to witness and watch in the middle of a what should be a popcorn action summer movie there's a real human story happening with his character throughout that whole movie. Uh, and I think that performance deserves an Oscar nomination and possible victory, to be honest with you, more than his Magnolia performance, which is great. The problem was he was in a film with a bunch of wonderful performances. Yeah. Philip Seymour and Julian Moore, even Jason Robards playing his dad, John C. Riley, Melora Walters, uh, William H. Macy, all doing incredible work throughout that yeah. movie. So, Nothing Tom did, in my opinion, stood out more than what some of those other actors did in that movie. And I think that's part of why he didn't win either. I I do think Tom, I mean, Tom Cruise is a really good actor. Yes. That hasn't always shown it <gasps> because it hasn't always been required. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think as Michael Caine performances go, that one's good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but I, I don't necessarily go, that was the most amazing performance. That book, I remember reading the book, Cider mm. House Rules. It is an amazing book. Yeah, yeah, Really, really messed me up. But I'm thinking now about what you said about Maverick. And I'm like, not only do I tend to agree, yeah. but it's almost like, and I mean this in the, in, in the best way, not the kind of BS way. Right. As a lifetime achievement Oscar to get an act, the best actor Oscar for Maverick for Tom Cruise, that's kind of cool. That's merited, I would say. More yeah. than Color of Money, more than Scent exactly. of a Woman that performance I think will resonate much more 
as people go back and look at it over the years. Because Top Gun is a defining moment for him in the mid 80s. And to be able to come back in 2022 and, and do it again, that is uh, unlike anything else. It's kind of crazy as you're talking. I kind of glimpsed the possibility of living in a world without Tom Cruise, that he may die someday. And that is kind of insane for me to even consider a world without Tom Cruise. I don't think I want to live in it, I'll be honest with you. It, it, it's funny, in um, in The Assistance, mm. there's a line that nobody hears because it's underneath some voiceover, but it's the agent pitching uh, the actor about wanting to sign them. And they're talking about actors that stood the test of time yeah. and talking about Paul Newman and people like that. And the person sh- that she lists at the end of the line that no one will ever hear because it's under voiceover yeah. is, it's like Tom Cruise you know, and his career is just never going away. And I wrote that line in 2007. Yeah. You know, and 15 true. years later, it's still completely true. Arguably stronger than it's ever been before. Yeah. With uh, the Mission Impossible films. Coming. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you, Cameron. What's our what's our next question, John? So Mitchell uh, Frenick, Fenick, I hope I'm saying that right, or Finnich. Hi, John and Steve. Love the podcast and what you guys do. I was never a big movie guy, but in the past few years, I've jumped into the film world in your podcast has been my guide through an introduction to a lot of classic cinema and some of my now favorite movies. Can't wait to hear your episodes on Raging Bull when the time comes. On to my question. Over the pandemic, I drove uh, into home theater slash AV and film. Oh, I dove, sorry. Over the pandemic, I dove into home theater slash AV and film as a way to enjoy my time at home more. So how do you guys watch movies at home? Or do you just watch on a TV with TV speakers? Do you have uh, dedicated rooms to watch in? If so, what kind of setups do you guys have? Also, what are some reference quality films or scenes that you like to use to demonstrate video and audio performance of your setups? Thanks for the countless hours of content. All the best, Mitch. Steve, what's your setup at home? And do you have films or scenes that you put on from your DVDs or Blu-rays or from the streaming services to test the look and sound um, of these films at your house? Well, obviously, I have an 8K projection system in my 30-seat home movie theater with, <laughs> yeah. you know, 9.1 surround sound. No, <laughs> none of those things. It's funny. I I remember, like, when 5.1 happened before yeah. HD, uh-huh. and I got my first 5.1. My first one, I think I literally bought the speakers off of the back of a truck because they were probably stolen. Um, <laughs> okay. but And I remember, I think I've told the story before, it used to be that The Good Guys, which was an old stereo store, the oh, yeah. one at the Beverly Center was open 24 hours in Los Angeles. And I don't know why anyone needed to go buy a new subwoofer at four in the morning. Yeah. But I, whenever I worked on a movie that shot at nights and, I, and when you're done shooting, I couldn't sleep. Yeah. I went to the Beverly Center to look at speakers and receivers and stuff like that. So I always kind of like that stuff. Yeah. Um, I currently am watch, watch things. I'll give you two, two different answers. I watch things on the same kind of TV John has, which is an LG OLED. Those things are fantastic. I I would refuse to watch TV to listen on the TV speaker. They're terrible. Yep. Terrible. Um. Uh. So in my office, I have a sound bar with surround speakers. In my family room in the house, I have a you know a, a real five point one system. Hmm. But here's the big but: is that to me, as much as I believe in all that stuff, content is more important than picture quality. It's more important than the sound. It's the movie, and frankly, more and more when I'm actually prepping for the cinephiles, I'm sitting right here at this computer watching the movie in a tiny little quick time window because it's the fastest way for me to type my notes right. while I'm watching. And so I'm watching it in the least high-end 
way you possibly can. Although I have pretty good speakers attached to my computer. How about you? What's your system? Yeah, for me, I have two areas of the house. You know, um, the living room, we have a Sonos bar. That's our um, uh, sound bar for our uh, living room. We don't do 5.1 surround because uh, I don't want to set that up in the living room. My girlfriend doesn't like loud noises, so I have to acquiesce in that way. Sure. So. The uh, Sonos does a really good job, though, of making the fi- the sound feel like it's all over the room. Uh, we have the 65-inch LG OLED in the uh, living room, uh, and that's how we watch. We watch there with the couches and separate it, you know, with the, the proper distance and all of that. And then in my office, which is where I'm recording from, next to my desk, I bought a recliner, and I have a 55-inch LG OLED here. And then I have a Bose uh, set up there. Again, not 5.1 surround because the walls are kind of thin and I don't want to blow my girlfriend out when she's trying to watch RuPaul in the living room. So I have to keep, I just do a regular sound bar, sound link, I think a Bose sound link, uh, which is I think 2.1 sound there. And it works perfectly fine for the small space that my office is. Uh, And I have a dedicated area just for watching movies that is separate from my desk. So I'm very lucky that the office has enough space for my desk and also for my TV. Um, and the movies I put on are to test them are Braveheart in the opening mm. fight sequence, or the, uh, the fight sequence, the first fight sequence, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, um, mm. when they're traveling through the desert there. Uh, and what's another one that I, oh, Rogue One. I've been putting on Rogue One in 4K to really kind of see what it looks like. And it is a gorgeous. So those are the films that I, turn to now i'm not a jurassic park person like other people are so i don't put the tyrannosaurus rex scene on to test the sounds for me it's more that kind of stuff that i think really works for me um lawrence definitely that's a great great mm-hmm. choice i remember back in the day when before anyone knew what pan and scan was because we only have four oh, by yeah. tvs and stuff Damn. when i first got laser discs Oh, it yeah. was Jaws because I would show them right. the here's what a four by three Jaws looks like and here's what widescreen Jaws looks like. Because at that time, it was amazing to me to see yeah. these movies I'd seen lots and lots of times and had no idea that they were gorgeous films. Yeah. Uh, the big one for me for demo, particularly for sound, is the lobby scene in The Matrix. Oh, yes. Great choice. Yeah. A hundred percent. Especially now that it's been remastered in 4K. Whoo, uh, is it gorgeous to look at. Amazing. Yeah. What do we got next, Steve? Uh, we've got from Courtney case who says, Hey guys, been listening to the podcast for a bit, but my question is what movie would work better as a TV show and what TV show would work better as a movie? Uh, thanks y'all for all you do. Your listener, Courtney. Thank you, Courtney. Wow. Got any thoughts on this one? What movie would work better as a TV show and what TV show would work better as a movie? I could throw one out quick because it's one I've mentioned on the show before, which is my favorite books, the master and commander series with Russell Crowe. As much as I really love that movie, those characters are about, those books are about knowing these characters for 20 plus years. And so definitely works as a TV show. I think Zodiac would be a fantastic TV show. The Fincher film. Like a season long. Yeah. Season long. Yeah. Where you explore that and find out, and then you recast and do a whole new, serial killer investigation thing not like the one on netflix uh mind hunter a different one where you're like it's one case you meet a bunch of new cops at the beginning you have a new actor playing the ki- the murderer or whatever and then the whole season is them trying to track down the killer and then eventually possibly eventually arresting them at the end you know i think that would be the way because the way fincher directs that movie it feels like there's much more to tell uh, than he can get around to doing. So that's that's one movie that I think would work 
better as a TV show, even though I think it's a fantastic film. It's a great movie. So what TV show would work better as a movie? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I got one more movie because it's fucking terrible <laughs> and should and, and should have been like a, a series, and that's the Dark Tower. Oh yeah, good point. That's a great choice. I mean, come on. I mean, it, it wouldn't it would have worked better as a TV show, even if the movie had been good because it's a huge story. But that that's thing like, is that's like you know you're gonna fail the class, but you've got to submit the fucking uh, <laughs> essay. So you submit the essay, and you're like. Whatever I get, as long as it's a C, I, I can pass the class. That's that's what that film feels like. We have to put it out. We work so hard and we spend all this money. We know it sucks, but we got to put it out. Oh, it's you know? so bad. It is bad. What TV show would work better as a movie? Um, I can't think of one offhand. Um, Moon Knight. I think Moon Knight. Mm. I think because they kind of fumbled the ball on that show. I think if they had been limited to two hours or two hours and 15 minutes in telling that story... I think we'd have gotten a much better film than we have a TV show. I think there would have been much more effort put on, uh, more budget, more exploration of the uh, relationship between him and Khonshu and the different personalities. So for me, I think that if I'm looking at recent things, I think Moon Knight is one that stands out to me that could have been a better movie than a TV show. It's funny. My initial reaction is that John is totally wrong. Um, and then the more that I thought about it, I think you're totally right. Because, like, in general, one of the things I was going to say is that comics, theoretically, should work better as TV shows. Yeah. Because right. that's what they've been. They're ongoing stories. And yeah, I think, I, yeah, I'm rewatching the Netflix Daredevil right now. Oh, yeah. Which is really good. And it really, you know, Daredevil would be very hard to do as a movie. I don't know if anyone ever tried to do that. Yeah. Um, but it would be, it would be kind of difficult, I think. Um, and so my initial reaction was no, Moon Knight because a lot of the marvel shows felt rushed and they yeah. felt but now the more that i'm thinking about it moon knight was unfocused they didn't yes. know and so they kind of drifted in the middle and it wasn't exactly sure what it wanted to be yeah and the discipline of turning into a movie and saying no we have two hours what's the story we're really trying to tell yeah i think i think you're totally totally right uh what's next all right let's take a look at uh, another thing let's look at carlos eduardo rincon marquez I love that. All right. Hi, Stephen John, longtime listener, recent patron me- Patreon member. Thank here. Your show is my favorite podcast by far. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you, Carlos. My question for you, 300th episode, is what movie is well regarded as a masterpiece or classic, but for whatever reason, you just can't appreciate it to that high of a level? Mine would be The French Connection. I can't remember anything besides the car chase and ending and Halloween. I can't get past the terrible acting. Ooh, wow. And I don't know how I feel about that one. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that at all. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, masterpiece of I've always, I've already said, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, um, Easy Rider is another one that I really loathe. I, yep. I don't. I thought, and I thought for sure I would love that movie, but I, I think I crossed some kind of line between young rebel outlaw and old outlaw, and it's like I watched that film, and I'm like, you. I, I'm not saying that you. I agree with you all getting your asses kicked at the end and what happens to you, but I'm also not unhappy about it. So, and I think that's an issue for me because I crossed some kind of line where I no longer connect uh, with those characters. I also, and let me, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this because we're going to do the movie at some point, I imagine. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. I get it, but I don't know that I revere it in the way that other people revere it. And I think that's why I've only ever seen it once or twice in my life. And I'm not drawn to it. Like if it's on, um, and one more is clockwork orange. I know we did it on the show. 
No, we didn't. I, do I, I never need to see that movie again. And no, we didn't do it. We, oh, we didn't it. do it. Oh, no. great. Yeah. Well, it may, and it may have been because I just have an aversion. No, to you it. don't like it. No, I, I, I think it came up once or twice. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. It's funny that you thought we did Clockwork Orange and also just said that, you know, maybe someday we'll do because theoretically we put Cuckoo's Nest on the schedule. Yeah, we did. It's yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Louise Fletcher just passed away. That's right. And so and I, I bought the audio book. I was about to listen to it again. So theoretically, John. <laughs> no, we're doing it. We're doing <laughs> We're doing that one soon. Uh, I, I, I be I'm very curious to see how you react to it this time. I don't know how long it's been. Twenty years. I watched it. Yeah, I watched it like five years ago. Oh. And what I surprised me about it mm. was how much damn fun that movie is. Mm, okay. Until it's not. Right, right. And when it's not, it's not. Yeah. Um, my answers are the same as yours, actually. Gone with the wind, not my thing. It's never happening on the cinephiles. I think I assume unless someone gives us tons of money. Yeah. Um, Easy Rider, I don't like either for a different set of reasons, which is it's, it's you know me. I love the craftsmanship and hard work and dedication to detail. That's what I love about filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a movie where it's successful because it's so much part of the counterculture. And they just went out and shot a bunch of stuff that no one had ever seen. Right. Not because it's a well-crafted movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that for that for those reasons, it rubs me the wrong way. Um, I just noticed that Carlos wrote a follow-up email uh, that says, that starts with, I just realized you guys already answered my question during your list Patreon episode. Oh, okay. Where apparently uh, we mentioned Gone with the Wind and Chinatown, which we've right, done, so and The Graduate. That's interesting. Um, but Carlos does have other questions. He says, what is a movie that was not well-received by both critics and audiences, but you actually considered to be good, even if somewhat good? Uh, this is different from a guilty pleasure where you agree it is not good, yet you still enjoy it. And he says his two would be Ghost in the Shell and Chappie. Uh, I recognize their faults, but I still find uh, their production, cinematography, performances, action, and themes to be quite impressive. Mm. Movies that you disagree with audiences and critics. Well, I can't put the Transformers in there because that's a separate conversation. I think what he's asking is these are good movies, which means you could defend them as good movies. Um, that's tough. I mean, I, I think the first one that comes to mind is Thor Love and Thunder recently. I really liked that movie. I know a lot of people didn't and were frustrated by it, but I've seen it three times. I, I went and saw three screenings of it, and I enjoyed it every single time. Enjoyed it more every single time. Because I was able to relax my expectations or what I think worked or didn't work. And I was just able to enjoy the acting and able to enjoy what happens in the film and what they were trying to get to in the film more. So that's a film that immediately jumps to mind that I consider to be good, but most people do not. Or have had issues with the film itself. So I, I, I'm one of the people who had issues with it. Yeah. Um, but... Uh... I, 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 this is where my ability to come up with things on the spot is really low. Cause I feel like there was one just recently where I was like, I saw it not doing well. There's a bunch like, like West side story, like, yeah. um, uh, in the Heights, mm -hmm. like where I, I watched them. And I'm just like, this is really good movie. Like what's wrong with people? Like what, yeah. where are they not showing up for these things? Um, but I'm not putting my finger on ones right off the bat. Okay. That, and his other question is, what is a movie that was well-received at the time of its release, but you feel deserves to be further revered as a modern classic? Well, I just said one of mine, which is West Side Story. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think 1917 is an immediate classic. Like, Absolutely. I had someone try and someone who's very young and not a good film critic say to me one time, well, how can you deem a film an instant classic when you walk out of the theater? Don't you need 10 years to marinate? And I was like, no. When you, when you are experienced in an, analyzing films and knowing films and being connected to films in the visceral way that I personally am, I trust my judgment on a film in terms of considering it a classic. I rarely, rarely have ever called a film a classic where it turns out to not be a classic. Like I never called Crash a classic or these other films that now when you revisit them, um, you know, do not hold up to scrutiny. I think 1917 and Parasite in both the same year, I think will absolutely be classics that will be studied and revered in film classes for many, many, many years to come. I 100% agree. I had such walked out of both of those movies and and maybe to a slightly lesser extent the same year um Jojo what what's it called? Yeah, the, uh, Jojo Rabbit, yeah. Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, like just going like fuck that's those are really good movies. Yeah. Um yeah, I I I don't have a problem with say I mean I don't tend to say make like broad statements too much cuz and you'll hear me on the show I'll go well, I'm not sure if I can 100% say but yeah, I walked out of those movies going, those were fucking great movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another one I would throw in there is uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. As soon as I walked out of the film, I'm like, nope, this one is always going to be considered a classic by me. And what it did with the romantic, quote unquote, romantic comedy genre and Punch Drunk Love as well. Those were immediate classics in my mind. When I, There will be blood. That's another one. Walked out and immediately knew. That's a fucking classic. Yeah. There's no way it isn't. Punch Drug Club, I did not have that reaction, although I was kind of messed up by the movie. <laughs> Eternal Sunshine, absolutely. It's another movie. I wonder what the movie has shown up on our schedule more than any other. Oh. Eternal Sunshine's one of them. Raging Bull is another that yeah. have come on and gone off and come on for one reason yeah, or another. I think so. Uh, what's next? All right, let's go to Monica Weber. Monica Weber, her subject matter is John why oh why <laughs> all right let's find out here what she means hi guys thank you for giving your listeners this opportunity to get some of our questions answered john you are a self-proclaimed anglophile that's true you like whodunits then why 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 my friend have you not breathed the word about gosford park it's very true i have not seen gosford park uh oh you'd love Steve. it it's really good really okay this film is in my opinion robert altman's greatest film i've watched it at least 20 times and find something new every time it has everything, mystery, intrigue, comedy, tragedy, romance, and Maggie Smith. I know this isn't the type of question you both were expecting, but I will not have satisfaction until you either say, yay, that's yeah, that's a great movie, or we're never going to cover it, or just do it. Thank you, your fan, Monica Weber. Okay, so no question really, other than why haven't I watched it? And I guess it's because Altman is connected to it, and I guess I should say that. I'm not the biggest Robert Altman guy. Um, you want to talk about films that people revere that I just don't understand? Maybe the entire Robert Altman ouvre. I mean, honestly, I, I don't, I don't, the players, I've seen it three times, never does a fucking thing for me. It just feels like everybody's showing off and popping up in a movie, making fun of an industry that they themselves take part in. Right. And are quite willing to further the hypocrisy of that industry. Nashville didn't do a damn thing for me. Certainly Popeye is terrible. Uh, Nash? Yeah, MASH. I prefer the TV show. I prefer the TV show. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know what else it is. Yeah, but I, but I haven't seen But I guess I'll, I'll, I will eventually crack and watch Gosford Park for sure. So, so first of all, Monica, you've been a supporter on Patreon for yes. a while. And thank you very, very much for your support. Second of all, 
I really, I've only seen Gosford Park once. I saw it in the theater. Mm. I really loved it. I think it is the least Robert Altman, Robert Altman movie. Ooh, okay. Which, and, and I think you, my gut is you really would like it. Okay. I, I am not the biggest Robert Altman fan, but I've had those moments mm. when he really, when he worked for me, he really worked for me. Okay. A mash I saw a lot. I, I too prefer the TV show, but I absolutely love the TV show. I appreciate yeah. many things about the movie. Um, California Split is one I'm pretty sure that's Robert Altman that I really, really like. Yes, I remember. Shortcuts that. really worked on me. Um, there, there are a few others, but he, you know, he's, a, he's an odd director. Yeah. Uh, odd which is, yeah, which is why him doing this, you know, very restrained British mystery movie, yeah. you know, that in the sort of remains of the dayish sort of world is really interesting. Yeah, I would say, look, I didn't even like Brewster. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't even like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I do not own that in Criteria. I mm. watched that and it bored me to fucking tears watching that movie, mostly because I'm not a Warren Beatty guy. Never have been, never will be. But uh, it just didn't work for me. But the long goodbye, the Elliot Gould one, that yeah. is fucking good. That was a good movie. So. Do you like, I would think that you would like Bullworth. Did you like Bullworth? No, because Beatty. I, Beatty yeah. is so up his own ass that I can't enjoy him in anything. I really can't. Huh. She, uh, the only film I ever enjoyed him in was in Heaven Can Wait. But that was because I, I was still a kid. I didn't know right. who Beatty was. But then when you find, like, I've never seen Reds because of that. I've never seen Reds because I'm not a Beatty person. But I, I, but I liked Bugsy. Fuck, I really liked Bugsy. I mean, that's maybe the only Warren Beatty movie that I've thoroughly enjoyed. And Bullworth was so on the nose. Mm-hmm. It was like when I watched Dogma from Kevin Smith and everything was a big duh to me. I was like, yeah, I've already had these conversations. There's nothing new you're presenting to me in this film at all. Realizing that other people have not had those conversations in their lives about religion and the hypocrisy inherent in that system at times. And so- yeah, there's just some movies that come along. And Bullworth was, yeah, I've studied politics. I know exactly what you're getting at. Wag the Dog impressed me more than Bullworth. So um, on my political landscape. So yeah, I, I totally, I, I, I'm the opposite. I like Bullworth more than Wag the Dog. Oh, okay. I had the same reaction that you did to Dogma because I really wanted to like Dogma. Me too. Because like it's we, I mean, we just did Goodwill Hunting. It's right at that era. Yeah, yeah. You know, Kevin Smith. You know, as a comic book geeky guy, I'm totally in his corner. I love chasing Amy. Yeah. And then Dogma comes out, and it, you know, yeah. It, it Kevin Smith honestly isn't that deep a guy. You know, no, so and I think tr- he would say that. I think he would say that too. And him trying to write a deep intellectual movie exploring religion in a in a you know yeah, it, it just didn't it it, it wasn't that. Yeah, agreed. Our next question comes from Jack Washburn, who says, have either of you had a chance to watch Light and Magic on Disney Plus? It's a fascinating history of ILM and how it changed special effects. I highly recommend it. I did. It was great. I also highly recommend it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what more we can add to that. I think that's absolutely, I don't want to spoil anything. So I think what I was blown away by was a lot of the behind the scenes of how this all came about. And the work that they put in and how close they came multiple times to it not working, multiple yeah. times to needing to rely on ingenuity and troubleshooting and the intelligence. And it's a great exploration of how this is all built, but it's also a great exploration of the human mind and how it works in situations when it's inspired, when it's pressured, um, when it wants to succeed, how we can you know, figure things out. Um, it's almost like the, the dam clears or the fog clears and then it, it appears and then they figure it out and put it together. And the meticulousness, I think of, of, 
the whole thing was just phenomenal to witness. And I said to myself, this is why I don't do production. I, I could never do what they do. Just like they could probably never sit in a trailer and study lines for hours on end to make sure you're getting the right levels at the right time in the character's journey in a film. You know, there's just a difference there. It, it, it totally reinforces something we've been talking about since the beginning of the podcast, which is a making movies is really, really, really fucking hard. Yes. And B we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Like right. good point. You know, that, 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 you know, people have this idea of like, you just had this vision and you made that vision happen. It's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> You're desperately scrambling to try to figure out how to do the thing and what you can do and what it should be. Yeah. And most, and a lot of the time you're just failing. Yes. You know, yeah. and they fail a lot. And the the tenacity of that, particularly those kinds of guys. Yeah. I mean, watching, I think it's Phil Tibbet who's do the stop motion guy. Yeah. And the, the meticulous, there's this one moment in, and again, I'm spoiling it a little bit, but where he's doing the, uh, the Tauntaun, is that what it is? In, yes. On, um, Tauntaun, yeah. And he's animating it, you know, in stop motion and you show him just moving each little piece of this thing, a tiny bit for each frame. Yeah. And he's going to do that over and over and get it right. Yeah. I just, uh, amazing. And amazing. you wonder why these guys get super fucking pissed at people who do YouTube channels and tear their work apart casually um you know just breaking it just with snark and and uh, venom Uh, there's a reason for that we're actually working hard at what we do in creating this thing and daily hours on end you're working no there's no disrespect you're working hard creating a video but you're creating video based on all the work we've done and belittling it in your approach and that's frustrating you know yeah a little bit yeah a little bit a little bit all right, let's move on to Matthew Kearns. Also, have been a big supporter of the cinephile since almost the beginning. Um, I think it's my turn, right? Is that right? Yep. Okay. Matthew Kearns says, "Congrats on 300 episodes, and here is to more." My question is: I know you are often asked what movies you'd want to cover again and redo episodes, but I'm wondering what are movies you think you covered perfectly on the show? Wow! Thanks for the many years of great podcasts. What a way to turn the question around on us, Steve. And Steve um, is a humble. I mean, for all of Steve's claims of arrogance, he's also a very humble guy who's not. I don't know if he's willing to say he ever did any. We ever did any of the episodes perfectly. You know me so well because <laughs> my answer was going to be none. There's not there's no. Per, there's episodes I'm really, really proud of. In fact, most yeah. of them. I'm proud of most of the things that we've done. Yeah. And there's some episodes that I'm really, really, really proud of. Yeah. No, none of them are perfect. I'm that you're never gonna get me to say that anything I did was perfect. I, I can always civil, find things wrong with them. I think our civil war episodes that's that's still my that's I think our best. Yeah. Uh and I think what you mentioned earlier in the show today, the um Spike Lee weaving in people's interviews, uh, smart stuff. Um Um, I think the way we broke down Black Panther with Jay and, and Winston A. Marshall. Yeah. Right. I think those are some of our that was, you know, some of our best work ever and get and weaving in Winston and Jay's uh, point of view, not just as cr- not just as black men, but also as critics and pundits and, reviewers and comic and book guys who read comic, book, guys. comic book yes. stuff. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm I think our diehard episodes are really good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Field of Dreams was really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's I, I'm like I said, I'm really, really proud of the show. And there are a lot of ones where. I think we did a really, really good job. Yeah. But perfection is in the future. Ever elusive. Yeah. Ever elusive. Yeah. yeah. I also think the Lawrence of Arabia one was good. The one we did with Rachel, I thought yeah. was fantastic. Um, uh, okay. What do we got next? Uh, Thank you, Matthew. 
Yeah, thank you. I got Joe Dalton here. Okay. He says, congrats. He actually says, congrats on your 30th episode. Oh, thank I think you, you left Joe. out a zero there, Joe. Uh, I can't express to you just how influential your podcast has been in my life. Last year, my son was diagnosed with leukemia, and your podcast has helped foster a love of film, encouraged me to view films differently, and entertain me during many sleepless nights at the hospital. Oh, I appreciate you guys. Hmm. Joe, we appreciate you, and I feel really shitty about making a joke about you You leaving out a zero there. Oh, it probably made him laugh. We, uh, I, we, said, we said at the very beginning of the show that messages like this mean a lot to us, and they really, really do. So the fact that we were helpful at all in what sounds like a real tough time in your life, yeah. um, we're, uh, nothing could make us feel better, and we're glad that we could could be there in your ears then. you know. Absolutely. Thank you for letting us be in your ears, for sure. We, Absolutely. He says, my question may not be one you want to answer because a magician never reveals their secrets, but I was wondering what resources you use to get such specific behind the scenes information regarding pre-production and how certain things are shot. Mm. You always have such an in-depth information that seems like more than what one could get have gotten from commentary. And he says, again, congratulations on 300. And I hope you guys do at least 300 more. I'll be on Patreon as soon as I can. Uh, well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. There's there's no magical tricks. Mm. The the for me the number one source is a Blu-ray or a DVD if it has a lot of stuff on it, which sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And then it's the other places that you would think of looking, which is Wikipedia and IMDb and you know stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm a very organic person in that, and by that I mean like, if there's a movie I have a real deep interest in, I will absolutely do like extra stuff to come in with some ideas. But I also know that like Steve's going to do a good amount of the research and my reacting to it in a way is like the audience reacting to yeah. it. And so, but I also bring my years of knowledge of this stuff so I can think on my toes to react to that information and put it in context and spit out my opinion on it and how it connects to the movie, how it weaves into the movie and our overall conversation on the movie. So that is something that I, I thoroughly enjoy. Um, but sometimes, you know, Steve's got all those notes and I'll come in with notes and I'll feel like I'm stepping on his toes or revealing certain facts ahead of time because Steve likes to choreograph when he's going to drop certain facts, which he said many times on the show when you hear him go, well, I was going to talk about this later, but I should bring it up now. And so I, I get a little uh, self-conscious about that. So I try not to do it too much unless it's a film that I really thoroughly enjoy and want to make sure I get across selfishly to everybody that I really love this film and the level of which I love this film. Well, and this is, it's, it's so funny you say that. I was literally just thinking about this this morning of, I always am going, how can I make the windows bigger for you to jump in mm. and not make you feel that way? Cause that's not like you organically saying the thing that you want to say at that moment is yeah. nine times out of 10 better than my plan. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I have a reason well, that's why my kind of you. Yeah, I mean, like, well, it was funny. We just did an episode uh, that has not yet been released with a really great guest where you brought up a point that I didn't fucking know anything about. Yeah. That I was thrilled, and that happens all the time because you come to things from a different perspective. You know, it, it, it's so it's so. I always go back to there's an Orson Welles quote, which I don't know if I really believe him because it's Orson Welles, <laughs> but I still love the quote. Was someone asked him, "Well, how much do you prepare before you go to shoot?" And he said, oh, I prepare everything to the, to the nth most degree, and then I walk on the set and I let it all go. <laughs> and I, A, don't know that I believe that he did prepare to the nth most degree, 
but and B, I don't necessarily think you should let it all go. But that is a lot of ways what I want to have happen in our conversation. Yeah, I'm really prepared. But if the conversation organically goes in a different direction, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I don't want to be over prepared because then I feel like I'm manipulating the conversation to get to certain spots. So it's, that's kind of the way we approach it from two different right. angles. But I think it really works. And just like Steve, I, I'll watch behind the scenes or commentary track, or I'll read a bunch of articles, or I'll even read sometimes other um, noted reviewers about a movie, like uh, the Siskel and Ebert. I mean, so the Ebert website, or you know, so, some of these other people who Peter Travers or Owen Gleiberman, some of these other film critics who I revere deeply and get their points of views on the film to kind of get something in my head um, that I couldn't maybe quite articulate, but sensed a little more clear when we do the show. So those are things that I do. Well, it's funny when we're talking to potential guests and, Mm. and there's always like, to me, come in with strong feelings about the show. Yeah. If you're filled up, we're going to have a great conversation and that's all that matters. Right. And it's been really rare. It has happened every once in a while where it's like kind of, oh, this conversation needs a little kickstart. It's not it's not sinking in. But nine times out of ten, it really does. And I want to do – where's the – here we go. Spencer Kauenhofen. Uh, the subject is The Batman as Film Noir. I hope I said your name, Spencer, correctly. I apologize if I haven't. Uh, hello, John and Steve. I love the show and really appreciate how you allow the podcast to reflect your love of both modern and classic films. I have a question for you, 300th episode Q&A. I would love to hear you talk about the influences that film noir played in the recent film, The Batman, from Commissioner Gordon being a hard-boiled cop, Zoe Gravitz being a femme fatale, etc. Also, Colin Farrell reminded me of Sidney Greenstreet in the Maltese Falcon. That's a great connection. Do you think that Pattinson or any of the other actors were inspired by any specific film noir performances? Thanks, Spencer. Steve? Yes. John, yes, I do 100%. And I agree. And I think they were. And I, you know, I think when you take on a role like Batman, there's a certain level of responsibility you have. And I think the Spider Man, Batman, Superman, there's a certain level of responsibility to those characters. Like, I'm about to watch The Rock as we're recording this in Black Adam tonight. I don't, I think he means what he says that he's been waiting a long time to finally put this up on screen. But I don't know that The Rock has time to sit there and read all the Black Autumn comic books and watch all the animated stuff and kind of explore, interview with the writers and the creators of Black Adam. I don't think he necessarily has that time, but he's going to bring The Rock's approach to Black Adam. And that might work, depending on when I see the film. But with the Batman, with Superman, with Spider-Man, there's a certain level of expectation from the audience that you as an actor have to honor. And you as a director and creator and the writers and the producers, everybody involved, they have to honor. So I think... Uh, Matt Reeves had an approach to it. I'm doing a hard-boiled detective noir. So, Robert, here are some movies that I need you to watch. And Robert has been very clear about being a cinephile, and he's spoken about yeah. numerous interviews. So it would not surprise me at all that he watched uh, a lot of these movies to really get that feeling of Batman and I, in a noir, and I think it came through. So not only do I think that the particular film we're talking about, The Batman, mm-hmm. is influenced by film noir – you can't have Batman without film noir. I mean, Ooh, excellent point. I mean, like I, you know, I, and I was funny cause just as you were talking, I went, I'm going to do a Google search for something. And I bet there's 20 articles written on this topic that I just thought of, mm. which is I did a Google search for Batman and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh yeah. 
And I was correct. There are a whole bunch of articles talking about German expressionism and German expressionism is like a precursor to film noir. Yes. As is films like M, uh, which is the Fritz Lang film with uh, Peter Lorre. Yeah. Yeah. Is that that, you know, what is Batman about? It's about this guy in the shadows and the dark underbelly of the world. And I mean, it's not just that uh, Zoe Kravitz is a femme fatale. It's that Catwoman is a femme fatale. Yes. The character you know, and she always has been. So, so yes, absolutely. And, and the only thing that I would say is that because of like the extremely narrow, desaturated color palette, because of the violent nature of that movie and, and, and it's more adultness, it's even more film noir. But Batman's film noir. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what's so um, frustrating sometimes when I see critics review films who don't have the knowledge of the genre or the influences of the genre on a film. It is very frustrating because they go, oh, it was too dark. Why was it rainy all the time? And you're just like, I want to smash my head in a wall because they, and, and because this is true too, noir wasn't like this big, groundbreaking everybody was on board with noir the noir has always been its own little niche in the world of filmdom and when you get it right people who love noirs which are a fervent small percentage of film lovers really love them like blade runner is a noir right even blade runner 2049 is more of a sun noir but it's got that vibe it's got the feeling to it so um you've got to understand what you're watching and there's such a great noir as noirish aspect running through the batman that i think works so well that when we get to that final scene which a lot of people think is a bit over long they have earned me sitting an extra 20 minutes to enjoy where you're taking this so i love that well, yeah very much so um our next question comes from uh, Nathan Pollock, who's on another person who's been supporting the show for a long time. Yeah, uh, he says hi, Stephen John. Congrats on three hundred awesome episodes. A couple of questions for you both. Wouldn't be funny if he said, "Here's a couple of questions for John only." <laughs> well, Steve, shut up. We're tired <laughs> of listening to you talk. Well, he says a couple, but then there's three. So I mean, it, you know, I don't know if we've got a couple here. Um, he says, <laughs> number one, it's reasonable to say that one of the most impactful decades of film is the 1970s. Wait, 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 wait. It's not yeah. reasonable. It is a fact, period. Okay. So, are, Nathan, you're already, it appears like you're already in trouble here. Since with the Hayes Code over, we saw a boom of grittiness in movies, <laughs> horror movies featuring graphic violence, exploitation mm-hmm. movies featuring violence and nudity, and no holds barred look at the darker sides of society and the human soul. What do you each think are the pros and cons of such artistic freedom being afforded to filmmakers? Ooh, I think Steve, you should answer this one first. Okay. I will try to give a nuanced answer because this is a thing that I've been thinking a lot about and trying to figure out how to better express myself uh, on this area. Yeah. Um, I'm a free speech person and I was raised I grew up in the 70s. I grew up in the Bay Area, which is the home of the free speech movement. Yeah. One of the one of the really formative moments when I got out of high school, I directed a play and that play went to the Bay Area Playwrights Festival and I spent my summer working at the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Mm-hmm. And there I saw plays that dealt with every violent, vile, gross, artsy, abstract bizarre, weird thing and some of them were terrible and some of them were great yeah. and it was one of the most awesome times in my life. Like my head exploded creatively. 
And so I really, really, really believe that artists should have the freedom to explore stuff that people aren't necessarily going to think is awesome. Yeah. You know, the biggest example that I can think of that we've done on the show and one that we just mentioned that we'll probably won't do on the show is Taxi Driver yes. and A Clockwork Orange. Now, we might choose like, hey, we don't really want to go into the world of A Clockwork Orange. And that's right. totally our choice. I actually think it's a great film. I don't think it's an easy film. Yeah. And I want filmmakers to be able to explore that kind of stuff. And A Clockwork Orange is rape and violence. And I mean, it is really, 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 really sick. And it doesn't leave you in a place where you can feel great about what it is. And today we live in a world where people are saying, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk. We shouldn't talk about that. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely 100% believe that we've been exploited, exploitive. We've been disrespectful. We've been non-representational. We've been dominated by one group and one aesthetic. And I think all those things are true. And so balancing these two things out in my brain has been really, really hard. Yeah. To go, yeah, I don't think we should do, you know, the exploitive rape scenes that we saw in so many action films, you know, throughout all of the 80s. Yeah. I don't think we should do those things. But I also don't think we shouldn't, if someone wants to make Taxi Driver, they should be able to go make it. Yeah. You know? That's my feeling. Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's the society we've created is the freedom of speech, freedom of expression. So I would never seek to limit that from a filmmaker. Um, I wouldn't want to, I don't gravitate to those kinds of films, so I don't really watch them, you know? And so it's tough for me as well. I mean, I'm in this weird place cause I'm like, I don't want to restrict people's ability to make movies and it will appeal to a certain segment of the audience. But I do also believe that films and TV shows can influence people both positively oh, yeah. and negatively. I agree. Like you can't tell me that people aren't influenced to do negative stuff off of films, but you think they're but you can watch an inspirational scene and it'll somehow get you through your day. That's you can't have one side of the coin without the other. It's I just agree. how it works. And so to me, I think that's where the danger lies because not every filmmaker is responsible about portraying certain things on camera and on film. And that's where it becomes frustrating and difficult to navigate. So there's no um, cut. There's no black and white answer on this. It's very gray. Um, but I do think the side effects is that you'll have a movie that kind of breaks a taboo or breaks an approach to things and that becomes um, uh, revered because of its ability to do that. So you have to create the space in the world of film to allow that to happen. So I, I wouldn't seek to limit anybody. I just would hope that audiences wouldn't gravitate to exploitive, gratuitous stuff because it's not my jam, you know, and, and I, I always get frustrated when I hear horror critics talk about how great certain films are and, and the horror films and they're just, you know, taking advantage of young women and showing these terrible things. And I'm always shocked when horror female critics are like all about it, you know, and I just I'm like, okay, can you explain that they're you, they're, you know, they're purposely using the male gaze, which you say is wrong in in another genre, but you think it's okay in this genre. So it's very confusing. And I think at the end of the day, it's because we're all human beings and we have, shifting things that fit within what we like versus what we don't like. And um, we judge it through those prisms that are in our heads. So yeah. it, it's so hard. And my guess is if you and I do make it another 300 episodes, we're still going to be having this conversation trying to, oh, yeah. to work this out because yeah. there's things like, you know, animal house and porkies where the exploitation of women and women's bodies was yeah. the goal of the movie. Revenge of the and birds. we were raised going, 
that's cool on some level. Right. You know because, what I mean? Because we were fucking, you know, horny teenage boys. Yep. Yeah. And it was being celebrated in the movie that everybody yeah. was right. celebrating. And so we're like, yeah, wasn't it cool that John Belushi spied on those women when they had a pillow fight? Right. You know, you know what? It wasn't fucking cool. And it wasn't cool that a movie made you and I feel that way at that very impressionable age. Yep. So that's one thing. I don't think people watch Taxi Driver or even A Clockwork Orange and mm. go, oh, that's cool. Maybe some people do. You know, uh, some, some people do. No, you're right. Some people do. Yeah. Um, but I also think there was just, um, and it was just on the Sam Harris podcast, mm. this woman whose film was accepted to Sundance who did a documentary about former um, members of Al-Qaeda who were being mm. rehabbed in Saudi Arabia and how they were changing the way they saw what they had been a part of and they'd been part of in Guantanamo. Do you know anything about this thing? I did hear about this, yes. Wasn't there some kind of drama around it where they barred yes. it from being shown or something? Yep, like that? it got barred from being shown. She got kicked out of all these festivals and there was a lot of, you're a white woman, why can you make this movie? Yeah. And I just listened to her talk for three hours. Her life has been completely ruined, by the way. And she didn't have any money to begin with. She had to move back in with her parents and- Jesus. You know, and it's just like listening to what this woman did and the kind of film she had tried to make and all the Muslims she had involved in making the film. Like she thought the people that were going to come after her was people on the right. Yeah. For making a film that was sympathetic to Muslims. And in fact, it was the opposite. And she like literally there's a film festival. She was going to she had won an award at South South by like a few years ago for a short. And they're like, we're going to feature you and you're going to be like, you know, on the opening night. And then they canceled her. And Sundance and all these people that were criticizing the movie, none of them had seen the film. Wow. And there was apparently a New York Times article that spent six months writing about it that basically came out and said, this is a travesty. What happened to this poor person? Yeah. You know, and and like her people that like were an editor on the film or someone worked on the, they're getting death threats for and saying, you got to take your movie off this film. From the left? From the left. Wow. This is what, I mean, this is, you know, that, you know, you and I have argued about cancel culture before. Yeah, this is, yeah. you know, and this is like, show the fucking movie. Yeah. You, and watch the movie and then go, you know what? I didn't like that movie. Right. But shutting a movie well. down before it gets shown because of what you've heard about it, fucked up. Yeah. You know, I don't disagree with you. A hundred percent. Just like, just like when they try to shut down Last Temptation of Christ without having seen, seen it and all these other films the, that they tried to shut down uh, that question religion, God forbid. Um, yeah, I don't support that kind of stuff. So that's a shame, actually. I want, I want, I'm going to deep dive on that and read some more about that as well. And I wonder if there are pirated copies of that film somewhere. That people- I don't know. It sounds like a fascinating movie. And yeah. it sounds, I mean, she, by the, this woman, she was a firefighter in New York in 9-11. What? And training firefighters. She was kidnapped in Colombia for a week and held hostage. She was in Afghanistan. Like, this woman is fucking amazing. Wow. And listening to her, literally, it's a three-hour long. It's too bad because the Sam Harris podcast, uh, which is called Making Sense, is behind a paywall. So for free, you only get the first half. Gotcha. But I still, everyone listening, I highly recommend listening to at least the first half. Um, And she is, and you can't help but be impressed with this woman. I mean, she's, like, amazing. And it was funny listening to talk and then crying at the end. There are all these people that work for her for deferred payment (sighs) that she now can't pay. Right. And these are people who like are writing your letters saying, look, I'm really, really sorry, but can you please take your name off, off my name off the film? Because I can't get work right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, and she's crying because it's so terrible. Yeah, it's awful. Um, So Nathan, it's a complicated question. Let me, let me go to your other couple of questions. Real quick, uh, real quick. A while back, you did an uh, episode on guilty pleasure movies. 
You know what? I don't have any. I really don't. I, I'm, I was thinking about this if I come up with other guilty pleasures. I really don't have them. I don't know if you have some off the top of your head. Well, no. I mean, uh, Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> I, I, I can't explain why I like that movie, but I do. Uh, we talked about Zorro. We covered Zorro the Gay Blade on the show. So yeah. those are films. Love at First Bite. Those are films that don't get uh, a lot of people. I, I think Interstellar is a film that I really love and a lot of people do not like. So I like Interstellar. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I thought, when you started to say it, I thought you were going to say inner space. It's an no, entirely it, different love inner space. Yeah. Um, and his third question is: He's is uh, we've done Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. He wants to know if we're going to do Friday the Thirteenth. No. All right then. There you go. I I think I've seen one or two of them, but I don't. I don't like that series, so I can't imagine watching yeah. it. I don't. You know, you you people sometimes have a love of certain things, and as I can't dial into it, so unfortunately, no. Um, because I think Nightmare is worth talking. Halloween's definitely worth talking about. Yeah. But Friday the 13th is just a, a slasher movie. I, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. All right. What's next? Let's go to the Cam, the Chapman family here. Good eye, gentlemen. Congrats on 300 quality episodes. You both should be very proud of the fantastic show you have produced. Like, like you guys, I love movies, and I have a huge respect for the thousands of people it takes to make a movie. Now my hot take. I think we are all way too harsh with the way we review movies these days. We seem to have a real recency bias when it comes to allowing a movie to be called great or a classic. It seems that when every new movie that gets released, we all go straight to that old chestnut. It's no Godfather or Shawshank was way better. Recent movies like Avatar, The Batman, Lord of the Rings, The Martian, Mad Max Fury Road, 1917, and Interstellar, all are incredible movies in their own right. Each of these movies, whether you love them or hate them, are not perfect, but are all incredible examples of skilled movie making at the highest level. Just look at the sound design, writing, cinematography, CGI, acting, direction, editing, etc., etc. Yet we are all we all are so hesitant to allow them to be classified as classic movies. Well, we are not here on the cinephiles, but certainly I can understand other people are. I'm not saying we all have to love every movie that is released, but I think we are just way too harsh with our overall criticism of what is a very difficult product to produce. Other than space flight, there's probably no other product that takes so many people just to produce one product. I believe we all should take a deep breath and appreciate this privileged and incredible time that we live in, where we have such a rich and diverse range of movies to enjoy. Thanks again, gents, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Cheers, Cam Chapman. Was there a question? <laughs> yeah, the question is, uh, are we too harsh with, with the way we review, review movies nowadays? Uh, do we default to too much recency bias? when it comes to allowing a movie to be called great or a classic. So I think this is a great point. Uh, Chapman family. Uh, I agree. I mean, you know, we've talked about the cheap seats a lot on the yes. cinephiles. This is really, really hard. When, when I first saw your comparison to space flight, I was like, well, that's a little silly. And then I went, you know, it's not that silly. <laughs> I can't think of another product where it's like two, you know, if you watch it, the credits of a Marvel movie or a star Wars movie, yeah, there are literally thousands of people that work to make that two hour thing happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the term classic and what qualifies a classic, it's like, you know me, I'm always like, well, what, what exactly are we saying? Mm. I, I think there is definitely a recency bias. I like that term, but I also think it's old, like young people don't have a, re that young people aren't a 17 year old isn't going like, it's no Godfather because they probably haven't seen the Godfather. They're having the same, like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life reaction that we had, I think. I don't know. It's tough because by 17, I had seen The Godfather. So I don't sure, know if too. it's right. So I don't know if it's maybe, maybe what you're dealing with is that a lot of people, and this is true on YouTube, a lot of people don't go back and watch the old movies. They don't go back and watch the classics. They don't go back and watch the things that influenced the filmmakers that they love today or love to revisit from the 70s and 80s and what have you. Those, 
they were all influenced by these great filmmakers and they don't go back and see them or watch them. Um, so they review films from a certain prism, right? So you have to kind of gauge, and some, some people probably be mad and be like, you know, you don't have to have seen the classic movies to, yeah, sure. You can be very well aware of stuff and what works and what doesn't work. You can analyze a film, but I think there's a, a there's a thing about knowing the history of something. Cause then you're going to make a comment that's going to be unfounded that can be easily disproven by someone who actually has some film history in their background. And so those are the dangers when you run into reviewing movies like that without having that perspective. That being said, just because you've watched a lot of films or watched these classics, or whatever, you have to also create space just as they did back then to walk out of a movie. And there were quite a few critics that walked out of movies from the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and what have you, who knew immediately that that film was a classic. Vincent can uh, Pauline Kael, other legendary critics have walked out of films and said in their reviews, instant classic, or this is a masterpiece that will be revered for years to come. The, the ones who are very, very knowledgeable of film can walk out of a recent movie and know, just like I said, Steve and I said earlier on the show, 1917, Eternal Sunshine, Zo I think Zodiac could possibly be a, a classic come down the, down the road. There are quite a few films that you can watch and be like, God damn, Parasite. You're just like, well, this is absolutely a classic in the making. So it's, I think it's easier though, when you've seen, and this is my opinion, I think it's easier when you have seen decades of those films and seen the great films from the 30s, from the 20s, even 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, for you to make a knowledgeable assessment um, that a film is a classic as soon as you walk out when you see it. That's what I would say. It's funny. I, I, I'm tempted to go on a bit of a, a Steve um, <laughs> departure sure. <laughs> on, um, uh, on a tangent. That's thank you. That's the word I couldn't find. Yeah. Um, I think I'm very confident in my ability watching a movie for the first time and being able to give a relatively informed judgment on the craftsmanship. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can, because I I'm, because those things I can judge. Yeah. Like I would go like, yes, that is a well-structured film. Yes. It is well shot. Yes. That is good music. Yes. You know what I can, I can see that stuff. I think there's a weird phenomenon where sometimes we are seeking an opinion to take a stance and we actually don't. There's a lot of times where you walk out of thing and you're kind of, well, how did I feel about that? And I remember an experience that I had and you were probably there where we went to see a play with our big gang of friends that a friend of ours's girlfriend was in. Yeah. It was a really weird play. And I walked out oh, yeah. <laughs> and I remember walking out going, I don't know how I feel. I don't know, like it wasn't a perfect play, obviously, but I just like, and then, and I, and it felt almost like my mind was waiting for someone to give me my opinion. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, have you ever had this feeling like, well, what do I think about Brother, that? I think people listen to our show yeah, to get that and go like, what am I supposed to feel about this movie? Right. And then I think they enjoy our analysis of it that helps them come to their own opinion on them. We don't give them their opinion, but we might inspire them to find their own opinion on certain movies. Well, and then in this group, as we walked out of the theater, the the, yeah. the opinion was generally pretty negative. Mm -hmm. And and then I went, oh, okay, so I'm not supposed to like this thing. And then I went, wait, is that how I feel? Or was that my feeling created because of my interaction with these other people? <laughs> and and now, the, and this is, then that's not even the tangent. I'll tell you what the tangent is. Yeah. Here's a very interesting study that I read about, about the brain. Here's the study. They invite a bunch of grad students because there's always grad students in these yeah, studies. And they say, here, come here. We're going to give you a poster. And they there are a whole bunch of posters to choose from. There's a beautiful Monet poster. There's the cat hanging, hang in there, buddy. You know, oh, there's, yeah. 
there's all these posts. And it's like, take it home. And on one group of people, they said, just take home the poster. And on another group of people, they said, you can take any poster you want, but you have to describe why you want that poster. Oof. So for the people that didn't have to describe it, there was way more people taking the cat poster and fun posters and goofy, silly posters home. <laughs> the people that had to describe why they were taking the poster yeah. were more likely to take the paintings and the, you know, the Monet and the Da Vinci and those, those kinds of things. Right. That's not the end of the study. Okay. The end of the study is two months later, they called all these people and said, how do you feel about your poster? And the people that didn't have to describe why they took it were happier with their poster <laughs> than the people who had to give a reason. And I think that says a lot, isn't it? There's another one where uh, it's a similar thing where they asked, uh, they had people who were professionals reviewing, you know, strawberry jam. Yeah. And they said, this is how we rank these strawberry jams. And then they had random people rank the strawberry jams and they ranked them almost exactly the same way the professionals did by average. Yeah. So a thousand people came up with basically the same answers. They asked people to describe each jam that they rated. Then their ratings were totally different from the professionals. So when we engage the critical thinking part of our brain, we're actually no longer responding honestly, emotionally yeah. to the thing. You know, and that's why, and, it's, and that's why I go like this moment of what do I feel about this? Yeah. And then you're filled up by someone else or you, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. hard to articulate what a thing is and be accurate about it. Yeah. I, I think when you're on the fence about something, yeah, that's the time when you take other people's opinions, but then kind of, and look, nothing says you have to lock down an opinion too. Like, I think that's the thing that also gets in the way of film criticism or film analysis for people who aren't professional film critics or film anal analysts is, this idea that I need to make my mind up about this movie. It's like, no, you can make your mind up if you want right now, but also create the space that after a little bit of time, you're processing it differently. Yeah. And I think too much of the space and the sphere nowadays is however you felt in that moment that you recorded the video or wrote your review is the moment is the, how you feel about the movie forever. And if you change your mind, then you're, you actually weren't that good. It wasn't that good of an analysis and you were wrong. And therefore you're not that good of a critic. And I think that's such horseshit because people forget that, Everyone goes through a journey on a movie and how they feel about a movie three months later, hell, three days later, three hours later sometimes. You just never know how that movie's going to strike you. You know, like today as we're recording this, I saw a bunch of people write about the Andor episode on Twitter, like, I need some time to figure out what happened here and process it. Whereas for me, I was like, got it, got it, got it, got it, you know, right. because that's what I do. And so I find that to be um, a fascinating thing. And I think that's good. I think that people have to go on their own journeys to find where they they fall on a film. And, and certainly those of us who are love criticizing film and, and do it for a living to a degree, um, it's part of the joy of the journey is figuring out where you ultimately land on a movie, especially one that asks questions of you uh, and makes you want to come back and watch it over and over again to kind of answer those questions for yourself. Totally. Yeah. Our next question comes from Owen Jenkins, who says, good evening. I hope this email finds you well. My name is Owen. I'm 20 years old and I have one simple question. What's up with the no, the raid redemption, or in my opinion, superior, the raid two? <laughs> John, what's up with that? What's up with that? First of all, Owen, you're 20. Don't be demanding things from us who are older. But uh, <laughs> he, was four, he was 14 when we started our show. Oh, that's true. You're 14, Owen. Um, here's what I'll say to you, man. Um, I think we are going to get to the raid uh, at some point, whether it's a live show or an overall show, we shall see. But certainly, Steve, 
is a big martial arts guy, obviously practicing and teaching it. And there's a lot of fight sequences in those raid films. So maybe it's just a matter of us, you know, not thinking about it when we should have thought about it. And so now that you've sent this question in, we'll think about it. I think a live show, the more and more I'm going, man, it's easier to talk about a martial arts movie as a live show. There you go. So it'll be a live show. Our next question here is from Jean Altonen. I hope I'm saying that right. Or Jan Altonen. Hi, Stephen. John, one of my favorites short is, shorts is where you argue with Shannon McClung about which Indiana Jones movie sucks more, Temple of Doom or Crystal Skull. So my question is, which movie you disagree with or disagree about the most? I love hearing your opinions differ and fight about it. Thank you for the show. Uh, I can't read that. Yestavlison um, Tervisen. Jan Altonen. I, I don't know what language that is. I wonder is. what language that is. Uh, but um, thank you very much. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard because I, you know, it's like John and I, we could list like 50 movies to try to find one that we don't agree on. Yeah. I mean, largely our tes- tastes are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few movies. I mean, you, you know, I think you love the, obviously the, you're into the Transformers, but we've talked about that in the past. Sure, sure, sure. You know, uh, I was I was on the phone, by the way, with Steve Jones, and I told him that we had just done the Air Force One watch along. Oh, yeah. And he brought up Armageddon as a comparison. And I said, John, I would rather watch Armageddon again than I told, I'll enjoy Armageddon again. I don't know if I'm watching Air Force One again. That's a fair point. I mean, it's, it's Armageddon's a superior film. I don't I don't fault. You. Um, yeah, I don't know. We we will disagree on I think the most we rarely disagree on a movie but i think we might disagree on what a scene means in a movie or what we're getting out of a scene and i think that's a good thing because obviously we both have different perspectives we're coming from so we take different things from scenes that appeal to our own lives i mean there's i can think of three movies that we've done on the cinephiles Mm -hmm. where you were not a fan and one of which maybe you were more of a fan by the end but they are lost in america yes uh it's brief cool. encounter yes which i think you were maybe more of a fan yes by the end and highlander are yeah and i would throw in police story as well yeah yeah which yeah. is a film that i don't revere the way you do um and well, so um although i, I don't can, know if there's anything to argue about do you know what i mean because it's like <laughs> yeah okay yeah you didn't love that one i there there t- i can totally see your reasons for not liking all of those movies yeah, yeah yeah and they're all different like highlander is because i watched that over and over and over and over again in the 80s so right. i have deep love for it which you didn't you know um brief encounter is wall-to-wall voiceover yeah and if, if you're not into that there's all sorts of reasons not to be i mean uh, albert brooks could irritate anybody yeah even though i love most of Al- Al- yeah. uh uh brooks's stuff uh so it's just kind of funny that that's the one film that just kind of just doesn't work for me because i love him broadcast news yeah i was wanting to i was watching defending your life the other night on hbo it's great and he's great albert brooks uh, drive he's really chilling in drive. oh yeah and so there's a plenty of films that i enjoy albert brooks in but for whatever reason that film just it's too white it's too waspish for me for lack of a better term jewish they're not waspish. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's too Jewish. That's not where I get it from. I'll say it's too white for me is what I'll say. Okay. Uh, okay. Whatever that means. Put that in your mind. Um, uh, all right. What we got next? We got Paul who says, congratulations on 300 episodes. I love the cinephiles. Thank you. Will you ever tackle Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List? Those will be massive episodes for sure. I think the answer is yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Here, it's popped in my brain a couple of times. At some point, we're going to do the month of Steven Spielberg. Oh, month. It's, I would probably say half a year. 
Yeah. With Steven Spielberg. I mean, like, <laughs> this is the morbid part of my brain. It's like, he's not going to live forever. I mean, if Steven Spielberg were to die, we're going to have to do a lot of stuff to honor that guy. That's true. Um, I, I, so will we do saving? I mean, like to do saving private Ryan and Schindler's list back to back would, would be six months, you know? I mean, yeah. It would, it would, it, and it would kill us. It would, it would kill, us. kill us. But uh, uh, they're great films. And absolutely. We've talked about them. His second question is what is the worst Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in your opinion? Well, Paul, first of all, Paul Sevilla, I, I totally thanks so much for supporting the show. And it's always great to see you pop up with stuff. Um, it's impossible to say because there are plenty of ones that have gone, you know, right out of the theater, straight to DVD or yeah. streaming. So it's impossible. Now, if you're talking about the ones that actually got attention, um, I would say probably Raw Deal is the worst one of his films. I've never finished that movie. I've fallen asleep three times watching that movie. I can't explain why. Um, but it is horrible in as as when you talk about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle movies, it was horrible. I will defend Red Heat. Certainly Commando. Certainly people love Predator. And I, I like Predator. Um, but that film is god-awful. Uh, raw deal. So that's what I would say. I I I think you have to divide Arnold up into different sections, different okay. times of badness. Okay. Because there's Hercules in New York and the villain. Those are terrible and no one should ever watch them. True. And then there's the raw deal commando, you know, that era of, is this guy going to be a star? Or is he just going to be kind of a muscle bound, you know, flash in the pan? They're right. not good. Right. And then there's, and there's also things like Conan destroyer is not good. He appears in red Sonia. That's not good. Yeah. Um, and then there's the peak and then there's post peak. Yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, Batman and Robin is on the way down. Ooh. The and then there's just all of the some of them I saw jingle all the way. Uh, you know, all of those. And then there's, as you said, there's a bunch of kind of just straight to DVD. So I think there's a, a a lot of choices for worst Arnold movies. Yeah. I mean, I I like the I kind of enjoy the latter half uh Arnold here, the most recent like I liked Sabotage. I thought that was a brutally insane film. I, I liked that. Maggie where his daughter is a zombie and he ha- he's trying to kind of keep her alive, but not let her get captured. I thought that was a really interesting exploration. I loved Terminator Dark Fate. There's a film that I like that people seem to not enjoy. I like um, parts of it. I did. The whole <laughs> thing didn't hold together for me. See, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I liked Escape Plan with him and Stallone with Kavita. I kind of did too. Right? It's not yeah. a bad one. And, or even Last Stand with him in Knoxville. That's just a fun throwaway vehicle. Yeah, it's not see. really, you're not going to get much out of that. Around the World in 80 Days was crap. And Collateral Damage, Sixth Day, End of Days, those are all terrible films in my yeah. opinion. So, but Raw Deal is the worst. Let's go to Mark Pearson here. Hi, guys. Thanks for giving me so much pleasure listening to you and your well-informed guests who go deep on films I love and films you've introduced me to. So my question is, being British, I would love to know your favorite, with a U, uh, British <laughs> film and director. What does that mean? With, oh, favorite with a U. Yes, yes. Good call. And the spelling of favorite. Sorry about that. Being British, I would love to know your favorite British film and British director. Ooh, keep up the good work. And here's to another 300 pods under your belts. Mark Pearson, Barming in Kent, England. Steve, favorite British film and favorite British director. Ooh. Um, well, uh, you know, the obvious David Lean and Alfred Hitchcock 
and Ridley Scott. Those are guys that kind of got to go up there. Okay. Okay. I mean, my favorite movie is probably Lawrence of Arabia. So it's tough for me to beat David Lean. Yeah. Hitchcock is Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, and and Ridley Scott, we've talked about many times. When he is good, he is amazing. And then he'll go through three or four movies that are eh, okay. Right. So I think that's a good starting place. What do you think? I don't know if I want to give it to David Lean because that's such an obvious choice, but you're right. He is the best film director. But did he ever do a small film? Like I'm looking for the guy who did or the woman who oh. did. Yeah, brief encounter. We just talked about. Oh, that. that's right. Oh, yeah. I guess so. Very early. I mean, that's like yeah. If you Kubrick look at some of like his during World War II movies, there are a lot of really good ones. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fine. I'm gonna go Kubrick just to be a jerk. I was uh, wait. Now Kubrick's not British. Sorry. He's American. Yeah. He's American. I always forget that. Um. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it is. Um. Yeah, I guess it is him. Uh, as, I think Nolan's kind of fallen off. And there's a I lot have, of David yeah. Le- David Lean movies that are fantastic. Hitchcock, there's a lot of hit or miss within Hitchcock. Of course, he did like 40 movies. Yeah, but I think with uh, David Lean is absolutely the right choice. Fair's British favorite British film. I mean, well, and the other thing <laughs> I, I would say, I throw Brana in there too as a conversation for best British director too. Certainly, he's directed some really good movies. Yeah, it, it, it it's funny with um with Nolan. Yeah. I don't know. He's uh, the guy's brilliant and he's made great films, but he rubs me the the wrong way a a little bit with some of his stuff. Yeah. It's the sort of things don't necessarily have to make sense. And I'm kind of overwhelming you with this, you know, sensation with sound and images that are amazing. And and this is, you know, it's that experience of like, Oh my God, that was so wait, what happened? You know, that's kind of how I feel sometimes walking out of a Christopher Nolan movie, but he's brilliant. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's Lawrence of Arabia makes the most sense, of course. But I mean, I'd have to throw Henry V and Chariots of Fire in there. Those are just such great British, British movies. Well, know? that's what I was trying to come up with is it's not it's what is the most British of right. British films, you know, uh, wouldn't Sense and Sensibility. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Remains of the Day. That's yeah. Right. But not a Brit, but not made by British filmmakers. Yeah, not, not made by a British. Film. You're right, right. But we can separate. I mean, also you can look at um, what Tony uh, Guy Ritchie stuff. Yeah, you could argue that that's kind of the best of the lower class British films with Snatch and Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, great question. Fuck, excellent question. Topic. Yeah. Um, T.J. Harden okay. says, "Hey guys, hope all is well. So, what films?" do you quite can't understand are considered classics for me? I can't understand how or why Pacino's Scarface is considered a classic with some people. Mm. I, you know, I feel like we kind of talked about this a bit is that yeah. it's, it's part of it where I always, I always stop. I know you don't, but it's the, please define your terms. What is it you're saying when you say something is a classic, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have much to add to this conversation. A lot of the time, I think I can throw in, um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I don't understand why people think that's classic. That Mickey Rooney shit is so offensive. I don't understand people that can just ignore that shit. It's just kind of mind blowing to me. It is so offensive. And I remember when it was asked at the Schmodown Spectacular in the match between me and Dan, I almost walked off the stage and quit the match because it frustrated me that when I that I had just said and spoke about the fact that I needed the Schmodown to be better. 
about not asking questions about racist stereotypes in movies. And here's a question on my final match. I was just so insulted by that. And I think if I'd had my bearings a little bit better, I would have walked down. And so the, the, I just do not like that. And that film is horrific for that reason. It's t- um, it's so bad. Yeah. Cause it's not like he pops in a scene. He's like throughout uh, some of the movie. And so it's frustrating. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's, it's the ones we talked about before. It's, it's birth of a nation. I understand why it's important. Yeah, it's not a movie I want to watch right. gone with the wind. Same thing. I understand why it's important, but you know, uh, but as far as I, what is or isn't a classic, I don't know. I don't really know if I have an answer. I mean, uh, Casablanca is one I do not enjoy that. I don't understand why people love it so much, but you know, it is what but again, but, so, but now I have to ask you the question. It's like, well, what do you, how do you define a classic? What is the, what is its definition? I think it's like pornography. I know when I see it, I, you know, <laughs> it's such a, honestly, well, I could say that about anything. It's like, how do you define a sandwich? Well, it's yes. like pornography. I know yes. when I see it. Of course. No, there's some facts. No, that we can- <laughs> you need the world to make sense. I do not. I like a fluid world. You no. need the world to be constructed with fence posts in the ground. And I do not. No, creamed corn is not a sandwich. <laughs> there are on bread. It is a sandwich. <laughs> if if you put it between two pieces of bread, it's a sandwich. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, absolutely, I think there are there is like some universal concessions that have to be established for it to qualify as something, right? Yeah. So with a sandwich, obviously, you need two pieces of bread. With a classic, it has to actually be a film that you watch in in a theater and on TV to qualify as a classic. That's well, the basic premise. Well, and I think with the exception of the phrase instant classic, in general, a classic has to have stood the test of time to some right. degree. Yes. It 100%. has to be around for a while. I, I I think that I would say it has to be important on some level. Ooh. Okay. And I don't yeah. see Pacino's Scarface as a classic. I don't know who calls that a classic, but I don't consider that film a classic. But by the way, one of the funny ones is uh, that there is um, oldies in music. Oh, yeah. And then there is classic rock. Classic rock oh. represents a specific space of time. Great point. So, so that, and that's why I mean these definitions are a little bit, they're a little bit wonky. You, you sense know? that it's an important movie. That's a great point, Steve, right? A hundred percent. That makes the difference. I don't think Pacino and Scarface or Scarface itself is an important movie. It may influence certain elements of the culture, but it's not an important movie in any way, shape, or form. Whereas I do think as much as I don't want to watch it, Birth of a Nation is an important movie. Yeah. So is Gone with the Wind, and so is Casablanca. Like, mm-hmm. that, that, but, well, and this is the thing. Is a classic a movie that you have to like? For me, it is. Oh, I see. You're saying objectively. Yes. Saying, objectively, a it's classic. a classic. I don't like it. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. From Ian Johns. He says, Dear Stephen John, thank you so much for your entertaining and enjoyable podcast. You are welcome. I've learned so much from you guys, and your insight into movies has brought me a whole new level of enjoyment of movies. I already love and influenced me on the choice of my career. Oh, Mm. interesting. Anyway, here are my questions. One, do you believe, do you guys believe that there should be certain topics that shouldn't be covered in movies? I feel like we kind of touched on this a little bit uh, already. My answer is no. If it's in life, you can talk about it in a movie. Yeah. That doesn't mean that some things aren't harder or have to be handled in a specific way. Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. I think you can talk about whatever, I think there are topics, you can talk about any topic in movies. You can present it, but present it in a way that is respectful uh, and reflective of the situation, not exploitive. Yeah. Which is a fine line to walk sometimes. Yeah. Well, and you need to be aware of when you take on shit, 
Like if I'm doing a, a movie that's about, you know, a kid on his first uh, on his first Halloween looking for a costume and finding the best one and having a great Halloween. Yeah. I don't think I have to be very trepidatious about how I approach that topic. But if I'm yeah, but if I'm doing a movie about race and sexuality and violence and politics and and it's all in that movie about this kid at Halloween. Yeah. Well, then, yeah, I have to actually really think about how I'm going to approach that topic. Yeah. You know, uh, number two, what is your guys' opinion of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movie series? I feel like we talked about this. Ian, you have not been listening. You need there's there's all this has come up a bunch. John, do you want to give your quick rundown of your feeling of those films? Yes. I love the Hobbit films because they're about men. They're dwarves. The Lord of the Rings movies are about little children who are hobbits. And I am just a dwarf guy. I realized this as I was watching Rings of Power. I think the elves are white privilege. I think the <laughs> the hobbits are uh, or the halfling, whatever, the harfoots are uh, just uh, these, uh, go get the rooties of the world, um, which other people can love and more power to you. Um, and um, the dwarfs are the truth tellers in the world. And maybe that's why I gravitate to them more because they don't mind rattling a few cages and they're very alpha in their approach to things with, with the vulnerability and sensitivity and care as well. And I kind of just gravitate to that, which is why I like the hobbits more because it focuses on the dwarves. So, uh, a, I like the Hobbit movies less. Yeah. Uh, B, I think that the Lord of the Rings movies are far from perfect. Mm. And are incredible accomplishments. So, yes. like, you know, the stuff is, you know, we were way, way back hours ago at the beginning of this Q and A, we were talking <laughs> about Easy Rider, and I was saying like the lack of craftsmanship is what really bugs me. Yeah. Well, the craftsmanship is off the charts amazing in the Lord of the Rings movies, and so even though I, in terms of films, are they the greatest films ever made? I don't think so, but in terms of talking about craftsmanship, they are awesome. And the third thing, I did, I also watched the uh, Rings of Power. And it started off, I was kind of, what is this? What is this? And yeah. in the last episode or two, I went, oh, this might have turned a corner for me. So yeah. I don't know how you've been feeling about it. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, like we said earlier, I think I need more time to sit with it. Yeah. <laughs> with this one and see how I feel about it, which is why we haven't done a review of it on Geek Buddies, nor have I done a review of it on my channel. I think it's super dense and yeah. I will get made fun of in the comments section if i don't take more time kind of breaking this thing down in my own mind so and i want to avoid that for sure it's, it's interesting because it is not um mm -hmm. it's not delivering the yays in a way that you would think that amazon yeah. would have wanted it's a lot more patient and a lot more difficult i think than mm -hmm. i would have expected um yeah. so uh i think that is our 300th episode q a and we are going to continue this discussion we're going to announce a date really, really soon. But next week, we're going to continue this discussion live on Patreon for our $10 above members uh, and then for a second hour for our $25 and above members. And that's going to be a really intimate conversation that we're really looking forward to. Hmm. Um, but, John, do you have any any other questions that you feel we need to address before we end this Q&A? <laughs> no, I just want to say to everyone, thank you all so much for being with us on the ride, whether you're a new um, a ticket holder or you've been on the ride uh, since the beginning or you've been on the ride for quite some time. Um, we appreciate it madly. We appreciate your love and your support. Um, we ask for your support on the center on the uh, Patreon side of things. Um, and we try to give you as much content as we can to encourage that support. 
but most of all, more than anything else, it's the spiritual support. It's the verbal support. It's the um, written support that you guys send us that really encourages us to keep doing the show uh, and keep creating more and more content for you all to enjoy. And uh, for those of you who, as I said, who sent us such wonderful messages, thank you. And um, it's our honor and our pleasure. And thank you for being with us for 300 episodes. And uh, here we go to 300 more. I just, I can't, I couldn't top anything that John just said. I agree with every single thing you said. I just, I'll just tell you what just occurred to me. Mm. You know what it means if we make it another 300? Yeah, what? I'm going to be 60. <laughs> oh, just coming into your prime. I guess just so. Into your I guess so. So here's to us continuing this conversation into my 60s. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone who's listening. And we'll see you for another 300 episodes right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>